0: Our series is on V truths, That five truths, for those who don't know our uh, Roman numerals, uh, that's the number five. Um, if we've been met, uh, my name's Matthew, it's uh, great to see you here this morning. Um, we're looking at five truths that change the world and will strengthen yours. You notice that's about the past and it's about the present as well. Um, I'm going to talk to you about the way some truths, well, a particular truth that was saved by faith alone in Jesus, uh, changed the world, changed the world, uh, changed Anglicanism. Um, I've got a couple of books up here. Um, This one is called the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, This is a... People know what the Book of Common Prayer is? Has anybody come across that? This is a really old Book of Common Prayer. This is uh, several editions bound together. The 1662 is the real old school one that some of you will know. This is the 1549. 1552, 1559, and 1662 joined together. Um, 1549 is the first prayer book. So we've got that. Um, that's, that was uh, very, very important for establishing the thing we're talking about today. I've also got this thing which I'm going to talk to you about in a little while. Um, the, ser- the title says, Certain Sermons or Homilies, 1547. A homily, does anybody know what a, a homily is? Many does, but she's my wife, so she doesn't count. <laughs> a homily is basically a sermon, like a printed sermon. It was a, a book with 12 sermons in it um, that had a big impact in changing England and um, setting up what Anglicanism, what the Church of England, what our church is all about. Um, So I'll tell you about that uh, in a little while. How about I pray for us that we would uh, make good use of our time this morning? Actually, before I do that, I'm going to do something, because we're doing being really old and untrendy, I'm going to do something that's kind of trendy and I'm going to take a selfie of me doing my last sermon at this place and you can be in it as well. I, can't, I've done, I haven't done this before, so you can see how I'm really trying hard. Yeah, come on, put some expression or some hands in the air or something. And I'm not going to Facebook it on the spot because that's too trendy for me and I would just be try hard at that point. Um, okay, how about I pray that we'd uh, have a good time this morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these great truths that you teach in the Bible. And we thank you that these truths have changed the world. We pray that they would change our world and will continue to change us personally. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Five truths that change the world. What are they? Uh, here they are on the screen. Bible, they've all got the word alone. And then you go, how can they be alone? There's five of them. Well, they're answering different questions. What are they? Um, we believe in the Bible alone. We believe we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, and that all of that is not... Because I'm the centre of the universe, but because it's to the glory of God alone. Uh, they answer different questions. Uh, what's the basis of Christian beliefs? How do you get to know God? Well, the Bible alone is what that's answering. Uh, how do you get to the salvation that God offers? Well, it's through faith alone, that's what we're going to concentrate today, it's through trusting in Jesus alone. How do you? Uh, where, where is salvation achieved? Is it uh, achieved through people working really hard? Is it work, achieved through some... different religions all over the place. No, it's through Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the only one who has achieved salvation for people who will find salvation. Uh, Is it because we try really hard, because we're good enough? No, it's by grace alone. It's by God's sheer undeserved generosity to us that he offers us salvation. Uh, And it isn't, as I said, it's to the glory of God alone. It's not because I'm at the centre of God's universe. It's actually because God's at the centre of all things and these things will bring him glory. Now, these truths together change the world. And if you're a Christian, I hope you recognise these things and think, wow, they're actually really central to what I believe. Because these are central truths that make up what is a Christian. Uh, if you, uh, you might call yourself an evangelical if you believe through these things. That's kind of the title that goes for, for, for these sorts of uh, truths together. And they kind of uh, sit together and interpret each other, and they're all really important. Let me um, tell you a story and I'll tell you why faith, uh, why it's really important that these things go together. Um, a friend of mine was, uh, worked at another church uh, and he was in charge of training people to tell others about Jesus. Uh, and so there was a guy he took out to uh, go door knocking and, and, and just see if they get in conversation, that sort of thing. And I got talking to this guy and the guy said, well, I've got it on the screen actually, this is great. Um, this is what he said. He said, I have faith that I am going to heaven when I die. My friend who was was training this guy, the the guy he was with, uh, was immediately of that attitude, well, that's great. He's saved. He's going to heaven. He's got faith. It's faith alone that saves people, isn't it? That's what we believe as Christians. My friend was very concerned and tried to explain. It was a little bit awkward. No, it's not by faith alone, actually. Faith in what? Faith alone in what? See, faith uh, actually has an object. Faith in what? Faith in who? Faith on its own isn't even a thing. Uh, I'll explain what I mean. Um, Some other words you can use to describe faith, like synonyms, it's trusting, it's depending, it's relying. And as soon as you trade those words into that sentence, you see it doesn't make sense anymore. Faith, it, it doesn't make sense anymore. It has to have an object. It has to be faith in something. So I'll trade the words in. I have trust that I'm going to heaven. Maybe that kind of works, but still a little vague. You start going trusting. What are you trusting? And what... What are you trusting to get to heaven? It gets really silly when you put the other words. I have reliance that I'm going to heaven. I rely that I'm going to heaven. Well, what are you relying on? See how it demands a thing that you're relying on? That's what faith means. I have dependence that I'm going to heaven. Dependence on what? Dependence on who? And so these, these truths, these five truths go together. I have faith alone in what? In Jesus to get to, into God's kingdom. It's really, really important, friends, um, in our society, people talk about faith really vaguely, really vaguely. It's just like this feeling you got. It doesn't have to be attached to Jesus or actually be in something. It's just, I feel religious. It's kind of what faith means. So it's really important when we come to explain our faith, we ask, faith in who? Faith in what? What are you trusting? Who are you trusting to get into God's kingdom? Incidentally, um, I hope if you're a Christian, you want to be able to express your faith clearly. Uh, what I want to say to you is, I hope you instinctively grab these sorts of concepts, these ideas come up in the way that you explain your story and the way you explain what a Christian is, especially the middle three, in fact. Um, if, if those middle three in particular aren't part of your story of how you became a Christian, there's that, a fundamental problem there because they're so basic to what a Christian is. Uh, I'll give you an example. Let me tell you my story. Um, I became a Christian when I was five years old. Um, When I had been learning from the Bible, get the Bible in there, Bible alone, um, I'd I'd been going to Sunday school and learning from the Bible, uh, and I had questions as a result of learning from the Bible. On the Bible lesson that day, evidently, um, they'd been teaching that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and I didn't have the foggiest clue what that meant. (laughs) Uh, So I went home, Uh, my parents are Christians, Uh, they were then as well, Uh, and they explained to me that we all deserve God's punishment for our sins, but Jesus... Died on the cross for our sins in our place so that we don't have to. Christ alone, in other words. All we have to do to be forgiven is trust in Jesus and ask Him to forgive us. Faith alone. I learned that God's forgiveness to me is a free gift I didn't deserve. It's not because I've been better than other people, it's just because God holds out this free gift to me and I say yes and start trusting Jesus. It's by grace alone. And that's how I became a Christian. And become, continuing to be a Christian has been the same story. It's the same truths that are at the center of my identity. I'm a Christian because I trust in the Lord Jesus and Him alone. Now, here's a problem that comes out real quick. You're saved by faith alone, right? Just by trusting in Jesus. I want you to imagine you're driving with a friend who isn't a Christian and you get to explain to them what Jesus is on about. You say, you trust in Jesus and you'll, you'll go to heaven. You'll be part of God's kingdom forever. And he, with a kind of a slight smirk on his face, uh, picks up on this and says, okay, so you're saying trust is the only thing that makes us saved. So you're saying okay, I can become a Christian and trust Jesus and keep, continue living however I want. Just sin awfully and I'll be fine with God. It's not easy to respond to that question. If, has anybody had that kind of difficulty before? What's, what's the answer? Like responding to, to people without undermining this idea that we're um, saved by trusting in Jesus alone. It's not straightforward to try and answer that kind of problem, but it's very, very important. Uh, And we'll get back to that in a little while. Now, we are an Anglican church, uh, so I want to tell you a little bit about that. The Anglican Church was founded on these truths that are on the screen, uh, although don't, we don't quite package them in that way. Um, here is um, the statement of belief of the Anglican Church, it's called the 39 Articles, and uh, here is Article 11, called Of the Justification of Man, which is basically a way of saying how people get saved. I'll, explain, I'll read it to you, I'll explain some of the key words we'll come up with today. Um, what it says is, we are accounted righteous before God, only for the merit of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort as more largely is expressed in the homily of salvation. Now, really, really important terms, okay? Got to understand uh, this term here, justification, comes up uh, again. Justification and this accounted righteous here mean exactly the same thing. What does it mean? What it's talking about is when you stand before God's judgment on the last day and God is judging the world, He's judging you, He'll either account you, declare you to be righteous, in the right with Him, or unrighteous, not in the right with Him. It's basically the judge's decision when he bangs his gavel and says, you're in the right with me, you're innocent, you're you're, you're righteous, you're justified. And so we are accounted righteous, we're justified before God. How? Only, only, see, alone, for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because Jesus earned salvation for us. How do you get that? By faith, and not because of our own works and deservings. You see how these things are all, all coming out. It's really important um, part of uh, central part of what Anglicanism is about. Now, I just want you to notice this thing at the bottom, though, because we're going to go there in a little while. Uh, it's really wholesome and it's full of comfort, as is largely more expressed in the homily of salvation. What the guy who wrote this is saying is, there's a really, really good sermon. In the Book of Homilies, that you should really read if you want to learn this more, Uh, and we're going to have a look at that in in a little while. Let me give you set you up, take you back to the 1500s, so you can kind of understand a little bit better what the Book of Homilies is saying. Though, Uh, we're going to go time warp, go back to medieval England, go back to uh, the time of this man, Henry VIII. Let me tell you about medieval England. The teaching of the Bible in medieval England had been completely undermined. Um, by religious uh, traditions uh, that had built up over time. Uh, If the Bible is supposed to be the basis of what we believe as Christians, the Church of England, the Church in England, needed reforming very, very desperately. Very desperately. Uh, This man, Henry VIII, isn't a terribly nice dude, um, but he was the king from 1509. Um, He became king, and he kind of inadvertently started the Church of England and started the reform that could happen in the Church of England, though he didn't really want that to... That wasn't his purpose, It's not what he was on about. What he did was he declared himself to be the head of the Church of England. I'm in charge of the church, is what he said. Why is that important? Uh, Well, it was important for Henry because he wanted to be the king of all England. You see, here's the way it worked. Uh, The Pope was basically the king of the parts of England that the church owned, how much of the England, English lands, do you reckon the church owned in the 1500s? Have a, have a guess. Sorry? 80%? No, nah, it's a lot less than that, but that would be astonishing. It's about a third. A third of English land was owned by the church, and that meant the Pope was in charge of it and not the King of England. And he said, well, I'm going to be the King of all England... And so he declared himself the head of the church as well, so he could be the king of all England. That was one of his main reasons uh, for doing that. But then you get a problem immediately, because you've got this new entity called the Church of England. You go, what's it believe? What's the belief of the Church of England? And that was kind of up for grabs. Along comes this guy. Uh, Henry appointed Thomas Cranmer to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Thomas Cranmer is an evangelical. He believes those things we were talking about. They're very, very dear to him. And he would love to see the Church of England centre on those truths. And so he worked really hard for that. Uh, He had a lot of problems, though, because Henry wasn't really up for that. He kept on saying, we are justified by faith alone. And the closest thing that King Henry would ever be willing to say like that is, oh no, it's it's, it's mainly faith. Like, works help you out a bit. Like, works, you have to work really hard so you get saved as well. It's mostly faith. Um, You see, Henry's really concerned. Here's what he keeps saying to Cranmer. If I tell people that their works don't make them saved before God, you know what's going to happen? England's going to be chaos. People aren't going to obey me anymore. They're not going to do the right thing. Here's what Cranler said over and over again. It's so very important. Henry, why do people sin? Is it because they don't have enough rules? Is it because they lack fear? No, it's none of those things. The reason people sin is because they have a love problem. People love sin more than they love God. And if you can get people to love God more than they love sin, and you will reform England. It's a heart problem. He never won that argument while Henry was alive. But then he died in 1547, Henry that is, Thomas Cronin was still around, and uh, his young son Edward VI became king when he was nine, and he is an evangelical. And he wants to see reform happen in England. So here's a wonderful piece of propaganda for you. Um, here you can see, it's from a bit later, but you see, you can see King Henry pointing to his young son Edward, saying, He's my heir. Around Edward, uh, the Privy Council, and these guys are all evangelicals. There's Thomas Cranmer, right there. Um, they're all Bible alone guys. They want to follow what the Bible says and reform England. There's them destroying some traditional stuff in the background. Um, and in the Bible here, bonking the Pope on the head, is a Bible. and it says, the word of the Lord endures forever. It's saying, what we're going to follow is the Bible alone in sh- shaping and changing England. We're going to change England by following what the Bible says. That's a really hard job. <laughs> How on earth do you get all of England to engage with this teaching that was saved by faith alone in Jesus alone? Especially when you don't have the clergy to do it and a lot of them don't really believe the Bible. Well, here's what they did. Uh, Six months into Edward's reign, they released this thing called the uh, Book of Homilies, this thing, Uh, and it was the job of all the wardens to make sure all the churches had this, so if you're a warden, make sure we've got this in a new building. Well, it's not actually relevant anymore. and they had to read a sermon each week. You start at the first one, there's 12 sermons, 12-week 12 cycle, and the sermon cycle starts again, and it goes over and over again. Uh, and you have 12 sermons that you hear in church. If you've ever suspected that your preacher only has 12 sermons and basically repeats them, uh, well, they literally did. Um, this change, this reform in England it was going to happen through the book of homilies. They had this thing. So what I want to do is put the Book of Homilies in front of you together. You're going to be more Anglican than you've ever been before. Uh, And you'll see how wonderful, I hope, the teaching in this this particular sermon is. It teaches us that we're justified by faith alone. Uh, Let me put the first sentence in in front of your eyes. Uh, Let me warn you, it's in English, not the horrible dialect we've picked up since. Um, The font is uh, actually much, much nicer than what they had... Uh, back then as well, if you look at it, you'd be indecipherable. Let me read it to you. Um, This is King's English from 1547. Um, here's, Here's how it starts. "'Because all men, or people, be sinners and offenders against God, and breakers of His law and commandments, therefore can no man by his own acts, works and deeds, seem they never so good, be justified and made righteous before God.' But every man of necessity is constrained to seek for another righteousness or justification, to be received at God's own hands. That is to say, the remission, pardon, and forgiveness of his sins and trespasses in such things as he hath offended. Now there's a mouthful. You see what it's saying, though? Everybody sins. And that means that absolutely nobody can expect to stand before God and have God say, you know what, you're righteous. On the basis of your works, you're not going to be called righteous. You're a breaker of the law. You're a sinner and offender against God. You're not righteous. On your own two feet, you will be condemned. We all have necessity to look elsewhere, but Jesus has it. He's holding out remission, he's holding out pardon and forgiveness. How do I get that forgiveness? Well, I'll try and update the language so we can actually engage with it. Um, how do you get it? This justificational righteousness which we receive by God's mercy and Christ's merit, embraced by faith, is taken and accepted and allowed of God for our perfect and full justification. Do you hear that assurance at the end? Our full, complete, perfect justification. You're completely in the right with God. How? By trusting Jesus, by faith alone. Okay, the thing is, I keep sinning. What, what, what happens when I keep sinning as a Christian? Does that kind of make it all go away? Here's how it goes on to say uh, They which actually do sin after baptism, when they convert and turn again to God sincerely, they are likewise washed by this sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice for their sins such that there remains no spot of sin that will be imputed to their damnation. Imputed means counted against them so that they'll be condemned, basically. But you notice, it says something really strange here to us, I think. Um, They which actually sin, as in people who do sin, themselves sin, after they're baptised, why is he so concerned that people sin after baptism? And that's the problem. Um, Let let me tell you, um, when we talk about baptism today, it's basically a symbol that you've started following Jesus. You're trusting in him and your sins are washed away. We wash with water because it's a symbol of washing away sins, right? It, it cleans inwardly our sin away. That's, that's the symbol. The problem in Henry's day, because of the traditions that rose up, was that people thought it literally worked that way. That when you get baptized, literally your sins get washed away. And you can only baptize people once. So you wash their sins away. What happens if they sin after that? Well, they, they're going to hell again, is what people mostly believed because you can't get baptized again, and so you can't have your sins washed away like that again. And so in order to fill that kind of problem, uh, the church made up this this solution. They said, okay, we'll do this thing called penance. Penance is being really sorry for your sins and doing a special work, kind of a punishment that you have to fulfill in order to earn your salvation back and be in the right with God again. And so people did penance. They thought you had to do this uh, religious activity to be in the right with God again, and it's a very terrible thing. Because it doesn't point to Jesus and it leaves people feeling very unassured. I think people still often engage with God that way, by the way. I sinned. I need to make it up to God. Because that's the only way I could fix the relationship. Do you know what I mean? I sinned, I need to fix it. It's not the case with Christianity at all. Look, look again what he says. Extraordinary assurance. They which actually do sin after baptism, you know, we're really stressed about sinning after baptism. When they convert, when they trust Jesus and turn again to God sincerely, they're likewise washed by this same sacrifice for their sins. Jesus' death covers their sins in the future as well. You don't need a new solution for sin after you you keep sinning after becoming a Christian. It's just incredible assurance to give to people who believe that they keep having to make it up to God, which is completely untrue. That wonderful truth was built into the Anglican structure for doing church. If you notice, Stuart did a um, a confession of sin earlier. A couple of years after the Book of Homilies came out, they released a thing called the Book of Common Prayer, that other book I showed you. Um, One of the central things that happens in their way of doing church in Anglicanism is we confess our sins together. Why do we do that? Because every single day, Jesus stands ready to forgive them to all who trust in him. And it's as simple as that. The reason that was in every single church service in the prayer book is because it would be an absolute tragedy for someone to go home from church then or today wanting to be saved and unsure if God has actually forgiven them. It would be an absolute tragedy. It would be an absolute tragedy for people going home from church thinking the solution for sin is for them to work harder and make it up to God. And so every time they did church, and as we do church, We confess our sins, and I hope you realise that as we do that, you should be absolutely assured that you are in the right with God because you've confessed your sins and you're trusting in Jesus and other factors don't affect it. The homily goes on because we want to follow what the Bible says, and so it says, well, isn't that what the Bible says? Here's some stuff that came out of a reading earlier. It says um, from Galatians, we know that a, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith... In Jesus Christ, we believe in Christ Jesus that we will be justified freely, freely by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, nobody will be justified. We're not making this stuff up; it's what the Bible teaches. We're justified by faith alone. Now, well, oh, put that up on the screen too early. Here's a problem that um, comes up pretty quick if you want to take God seriously. God, is, God wants to be merciful towards us. That means he wants to let us off the hook for our sin, right? God is also the God of justice. And I think we want God to be both of those things. Um, we want a God who will judge the world, who will look the world in the face and say, that is evil and I will destroy it and I will fix that. I think we want to know that God. But we also all want to know the God who is merciful, who looks at us with love and compassion and says, you've sinned and I want to fix that and I want to take your sin away. And those two things are in conflict. Mercy versus justice, how's that, how, how's that fix up? That's the next thing Cranmer talks about in, this, in, in the homily on justification. They're in conflict, how do they get resolved? Well, at the cross of Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly under God's law and fulfilled the law on our behalf. So in the work of salvation, you've got God the Father showing his mercy towards us, sending his Son. This is what Cranmer says. And we've got Jesus coming and fulfilling justice for us. Fulfilling God's standards on our behalf so we don't have to. So we can just trust Jesus and be in the right with him forever. That's a package deal. What do you have to do to benefit from that? Not a rhetorical question. Hopefully you picked it up by now. What do you have to do to benefit from that? What's our part? Faith. That's it. Us. Faith. Faith. That's all. Let me uh, read, read to you what, it, what the, the bit there that says this real clear, and, and, and you get the idea. Crumlin says In these passages of the Bible, the apostle teaches specifically three things that must concur, must go together to justify us. On God's part, his great mercy and grace. On Christ's part, justice. That is the satisfaction of God's justice, or the price of our redemption by the offering of his body and the shedding of his blood, which fulfilled the law perfectly and thoroughly. And upon our part, true and lively faith in the merits of Jesus Christ. Even after Henry died, Cranmer had a big problem. Um, Something that people kept saying to him and, and kept having trouble with this kind of teaching. It is, you think that people don't have to obey God. They're saved by faith alone, therefore they don't have to obey God. They can live however they want. England is going to turn into chaos if they take this stuff seriously. Did you notice the way he talked about faith at the end of that quote, though? His favorite way of talking about faith? We're justified by faith alone. The saving faith, genuine saving faith, is called lively faith. It's a faith that's spiritually alive, is the way he wants to talk about it. There's a quote on the screen about that, I think. Oh, good. Um... Yeah, good. So you'll, you'll, you'll see, um, I've underlined it here. It says, "...the Bible demands nothing on the behalf of man concerning his justification, but only a true and lively faith, which nevertheless is the gift of God, and not man's only work without God. And yet that faith..." You have to think very carefully about this. "...and yet that faith does not exclude repentance, hope, love, and the fear of God being joined with faith in every man who's justified." but it excludes it from the office of justifying. That last sentence is really, really important. Have a look at it again for a second. Have a think about it. Faith alone has the office of justifying, but the faith that justifies has joined with it these other virtues as well, the things that people care about, obedience to God, loving God, that kind of thing. It looks like this, faith alone justifies, this is, we, we trust in Jesus and that's how we're saved but the faith that is real, the faith that the Holy Spirit gives and his genuine trust in Jesus has stuff attached to it, it has repentance, hope, love, fear of God around it and they aren't the thing that grab hold of Jesus. You're not saved because you love enough, you're saved because you trust Jesus but people who trust Jesus will have their hearts changed. People who genuinely trust Jesus and the Spirit of God's at work in them will learn to fear God and their lives will be changed by this great God who's loved them enough to save them and forgive them freely. Those things will be attached to it. Now, that might sound like a really precise point to make. It's absolutely crucial for you to be assured of your salvation. Here's why. Considering that all Christians sin and are still prone to sin... When you sin and you're deeply ashamed of how you've offended God and harmed others, do you feel like your forgiveness and your right standing with God's been threatened by that? That's the difference it makes. When you're depressed and you feel out of step with God and you can't point to repentance, hope, love, fear of God and good works and all you can see is Jesus and you wish you could have something that Jesus is offering, well, if those things are the basis that you're going to be uh, saved then it's going to undermine your assurance. It gets worse than that, though. I think as you grow in Christ and the Holy Spirit works in you to see yourself clearer and to see your own sin more clearly, you can look back at your own life and things that have happened in the past and you go, back then, I did this thing and it was really good. It was really impressive. I served this person. I did this ministry. I loved these people in my family in these really self-sacrificial ways. And you think, that was a good work. I did really well then. It was completely righteous. That's, That's a really good thing about me. And you look back at that from a more mature position and you think, you know what? That wasn't as much about them as I thought it was. It was more about me. I wanted them to notice how good I am. I wanted to be, feel feelings of validation that I'm good, that I'm a good person. So that's why I did these good deeds. In fact, these things that I do are never unstained with bad motives and sin I can't escape from. And that doesn't threaten assurance at all. Justification by faith means that as we grow in God's spirit and we're surprised by how deeply sinful we still are, we can still be assured we're in the right standing with God. And so the homily goes on and it says, well, you have to renounce all merit then. You need to not think that anything you do, any of your good deeds, affect your standing with God because it's all trust in Jesus. A real danger for Christians, who are transformed by Jesus, is we start being impressed by ourselves. We start thinking, honestly, we're better than other people. And so we start trusting ourselves instead of Jesus. There's this really good illustration that um, Martin Luther used. Um, he was a reformer who influenced Cranmer. He died the year before this homily came out. Um, here's his story to think about how, how, how this whole thing works. He says, I want you to imagine a dog with a bone in its mouth. It's the kind of bone in its mouth that makes other dogs jealous. It's an amazing bone. Um, The bone represents the righteousness and justification that God's freely given us by faith. The dog didn't earn it, just opened his mouth, he's got this thing. And so he walks around, he's, he's got this wonderful bone. The temptation for the dog is when he goes down to the lake, bone in mouth, he goes over onto the pier and looks down into the water. And what does he see staring back at him? He sees the kind of bone that would make other dogs jealous. And he thinks, that's in my reach. I could grab that bone and I would be in possession of an amazing bone that I earned, that I grabbed, that is mine and I can be proud of. The dog goes for it. He opens his mouth. The bone in his mouth comes out of his mouth, goes into the lake, and he loses the real bone and he loses his reflection of the bone. You see what he's saying? When people trust in Jesus, they start being transformed to look more like Jesus. But if you start looking at the reflection, your transformation and trusting that you're going to lose Jesus. We're saved by faith alone and not by our works, even as the Holy Spirit changes us to be more like Jesus. Now, if people take that seriously, the trust alone in Jesus is what makes me right with God. It will change our world. It will change uh, the world. It changed England. And I want to finish with uh, the end of the, uh, the homily here, where he basically draws attention again to how faith alone changes us. Faith isn't alone. It always has good works attached to it, but we're saved by faith alone in Jesus alone. Um, and here's what he says at the end of the, uh, how the homily ends. Um, These great and merciful benefits of God, if they be well considered, do neither minister unto us occasion to be idle and to live without doing any good works, so they don't give us excuse to be lazy, yet, neither yet stir us by any means to do evil things, But on the contrary, if we're not desperate persons with hearts harder than stone, they move us to render our whole selves under God entirely, with all our will, our hearts, might and strength to serve Him in good deeds, obeying His commandments during our lives, to seek in all things His glory and honour. And these benefits of God, deeply considered, do move us to be ever ready to give ourselves to our neighbours, and as much as lies with us to study with all our endeavour to do good to everyone. These are the fruits of true faith, to do good as much as is able to us, to every man, and above all things and in all manners to advance the glory of God, of whom only we have our sanctification, our justification, salvation and our redemption. To him be ever glory, praise and honour, world without end. Amen.